came so that all people, places and things, could be restored to a right relationship with God. And in the same way, we believe we are missionaries sent into our culture to restore all things to God through Jesus. All right, so that's what our website says. Now, this is what Jeremiah wrote uh, to the exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I love that. You know, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, I did it. Uh, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where, you, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So this is what God is calling them to do while they're in, they're in Babylon. Jesus prayed to his Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, so... We have the same missionary call. So as a result of hold fast our gospel identity, how do we stay, um, how, how do we stay sane? Okay? So how do we stay sane? How do we think clearly in a culture that is insane? All right? So now this is how Truman, uh, this is Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is how he, in the introduction, this is how he, uh, he starts it. Um, and I think you'll appreciate, you'll understand. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Here's the, here's the statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet, today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not as only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or to question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And those who think of it as, a meaningful, uh, as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college sem seminars on queer theory or French post-constructualism. They are ordinary people with little or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies whose advocates swagger along the corridors of our most hallowed centers of learning. So, yeah, 30 years ago, that statement... I am a woman trapped in a man's body? We would have all laughed at that. And now that is, if you laugh at that today, you are, as he says, stupid, immoral, or subject yet to another irrational phobia. So how do we stay sane in this? In, I mean, that's insane. This is insanity. So how do we, how do we stay sane uh, in, in this culture? So... Um, Yet we no longer live in a culture that is thinking cl clearly. So how do we maintain clarity? So there's our next C here. We have conscience clarity in the face of a culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 1, uh, what, what was at peril was Daniel's conscience. I think in chapter 2, what is at peril is Daniel's clarity. Daniel's clarity. So let's turn to the text, uh, Daniel chapter 2. Now, immediately we're going to find... The kingdom of Babylon is in crisis. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the one now bestowing favors that we just ended with in chapter 2. Rather, he appears as a frustrated human being. He is having a personal crisis, which then is going to affect the rest of the kingdom, right? The king has a crisis, a problem. He has trouble. The rest of the kingdom is going to have uh, trouble. Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Now, uh, it's unclear exactly what is the distinction between uh, these different categories, but all to say, we can say this, they are the experts. They're the experts of the day. And they're the most educated and revered by the culture, okay? And later on, they're just, eventually they're just lumped into the phrase, the wise men. So they're the experts, the, the wise men of the day, verse 3. Um, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled, in, is troubled to, know the, is to, know, to know the dream. So is it possible that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream? Uh, we all have experience waking, you know, you wake up from a vivid dream that you have, and it's kind of like when you take a picture, uh, like a flashbulb or something, you know, like, or like a flashbulb in your face or whatever, and slowly that image kind of goes away. And so it's, it's possible that he generally knew the dream, but he couldn't remember the vividness of it. He knew it troubled him. Uh, and we know, we know that he knows enough of the dream that he can call them to account uh, back in, I think, down in verse 9, I think is where he can, can kind of call them to account. Yeah, verse 9, where he can question the expert's veracity. He knows enough that if you, you try to blow smoke, I'm going to know it, right? So he knows somewhat of the dream, but he doesn't know all of the dream. So verse 4, then the Chaldeans perhaps representing all the wise men. You can only imagine what's going on in their head. He, he, he said, um, uh, you know, uh, he certainly didn't ask us to make known the dream, did he? He didn't say that, did he? Did he say that? Um, so, so he said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation, because that's what we do. We just do the interpretation thing, right? You tell us a dream, we tell you the interpretation. All right, verses Five through nine. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb for limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will show you and and then I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. (laughs) Okay, this is crazy. Verse 10, okay, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. This is an impossible request. Man isn't capable of fulfilling the king's demand. It is, bottom line, an issue of capability. We do not have that capability. In their desperation and frustration, they're really almost teetering on insubordination here uh, by implying, basically they're implying, who do you think you are? When they say this, for no great, this is verse 10, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. 
And finally, they identify what is necessary to fulfill the king's demand. Look at verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Well, okay, impossible. Unless a god or gods reveal it. Look at the end of verse 11. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Yeah, yeah, here we go. All right. Hmm. Man, I wish God would only become flesh, right? All right. All right, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions uh, to kill them. All right. All right, so, so far we've read, we've made some observations, or at least you're reading through there a little bit. Through this whole passage, how is the, how is the state of the king described? How is his state described? How, and, of course, how the king goes is how the kingdom's going to go. So how might you report the state of the kingdom? How's it going? Okay, trouble. Okay, troubled, verse 1. Troubled, so troubled that he was, as you've probably experienced, sleepless, verse 1. All right, what else? What else do you see there? Look at the text. Look at the text. What? Straining the swamp. Nicely done. Colton, thank you. Huh? Yeah, verse 9. Thank you. Excellent. He's accusatory, verse 9. He's possibly paranoid at this point. You know, I don't, you guys have been lying to me the whole time, all the time. Yeah, draining the swamp. I love it. Okay. What else? He's furious, angry. Yeah, he's crying out for truth. He wants to know. This thing has troubled him so much, he wants to know what, the, what is the truth here. You know, this is troubling me, this dream that I've had. And he's being foolish, right? What's he going to do? So his response is, I'll just kill all the, all the people that, I, you know, could give me the answer. I mean, he's, he's gone bonkers. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's looking for the truth, and he knows the only way he's going to get to the truth is, is that they tell him the dream because they, he can't trust them with what he's gone in the past. Yes, Colton? No, the resource is trust. Yeah. all these civilizations and Point us back to Christ. Yeah, right, right. So he can't trust his own worldview. He can't trust those around him. He can't trust the experts that are around him. He's in a point of, of crisis. And, you know, and, and God, this is, this is amazing because God brings us people into our lives just like this. So they're holding on to. So as I looking as as we're looking out onto the horizon of our future, at one one point you're thinking this world is insane. But what we're going to discover with the insanity of this world is going to give us some tons of opportunity. So we're really on the verge of something really good going to be happening here in the coming years. We're having an opportunity to bring truth to people who have been trying to trust in this insanity, and they're finding out it is it is failing them, and they want to know whom can I trust? What is really the truth here? All right, and so. 
so this what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar has been going on over centuries and centuries, so that we can even think history itself has tyrants who, of, to their own detriment, they purge their country of their most valued uh, citizens. So we can think of that just on the world stage. You think of China as one. Mao, Mao did that. Uh, you think of uh, Russia, I mean, Soviet Union, um, Stalin. You know, a few of these others. But anyway, so we can see that on, the, on, that, on that level as well. So look at verses 14 and 16 through, through 16. How is Daniel described in terms of his response in the face of the threats? So you read verses 14 through 16, and how is he responding? Okay, prudence and discretion. So get the, get the, can you feel the contrast of what is going on here? Uh, with Nebuchadnezzar versus Daniel. So prudence means wisdom in the management of one's affairs. So it's wisdom in the management of your affairs. All right? And then discretion means speaking in a way to avoid offense. Speaking in a way to avoid offense. All right? So Arioch's willingness to explain the matter to Daniel says something about Arioch and the relationship he has there, both to Daniel's approach and to Arioch's respect of Daniel. And so you begin to compare and contrast the king's reaction with Daniel, and you find quite a juxtaposition. It's easier to write than say, I guess. He's out of control. He's angry, rash decision-making, over-the-top response, and then what do we have with Daniel? Calm, self-controlled, and self-controlled inquiry. He's asking questions. Verse, verse 16, verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. Now, just get yourself into the moment, okay? Nothing has changed, right? Nothing has changed for Daniel and his friends. There's no man, it's true, there's no man who can fulfill the king's command. There's nobody can do that. This hasn't changed. There's no history of a king who has asked what has been asked of them. This is truly a precedent moment. All right? Thirdly, the only one who knows the mind of man is God, and he doesn't dwell with flesh. He is holy. That is, he's set apart. He's not like us. Yet Daniel asks the king for a time. So he said, give me a time. Give me some time. All right. However, that isn't going to change those certitudes, right? Nothing's going to change. Well, those three things that we know, nothing is changing in terms of Daniel's circumstance and situation. So what's his plan? Well, before you get to that plan, well, before we get to that plan, we need to ask um, what produces this kind of clear thinking? He was very clear. I mean, he was very calm at this moment. How was he able to remain sane in the face of this insanity? Well, I think here it is. Daniel was resolved to hold fast to his God. Okay, this is similar. To hold fast to his God. That is, he knew God's character and resolved to trust in him. All right? So he's made a resolution I, need, I know who God is. So he knew who God was. He's resolved that I will always hold on to the character of God. And that is going to be, that's going to be what is going to help me to be sane in, in insane moments. 
to give me some clarity, to give me some calm, uh, to be able to inquire with good questions, because I know who God is. We resolve to hold on to his character, and we're going to see what, what he resolved to hold on to in just a minute here. Resolved to hold on to his character, gave him this kind of calmness, this clarity in the face of this insanity. And confidence, yes, and confidence that he's... Yeah. So what's his plan? By the way, we'll just get to his plan. What is his plan? Well, he goes back to his friends, and what's he say we're going to do? Pray. We're going to pray. There's our plan. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Such a, such a good picture for him. So I just love his plan. His plan, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. Pray, right? Pray. Now, what he's ultimately doing is praying is what he is, he's showing what he's depending upon in this insane culture that he is, a uh, cultural moment that he's, living, that he's living in. So we must resolve to hold on to uh, our God if we're going to have clarity. So what did Daniel know about God? Well, I want you on your own now to read verses 17 through 24, 17 through 24, and then we're going to identify what Daniel claims about God there. So you're on your own now, 17 through 24, thus you need to have your Bible in front of you, so make sure you get that done. Okay, there you go. Good job. 17 through 24, read that through. All right, identify what Daniel claims about God. What do you come up with? What do you see in there? You're making observations, this is good. What do you observe? He's got the monopoly on wisdom. He is the only wise one, ultimately. He is wise. Good. What? And might. And might. Wise and mighty. Yes, might. Good. Oh, so, uh, I'm sorry, Who's, where, where'd you see that? Where'd you see that? What's that? Yeah, it's down to 24. Oh, I didn't, I didn't pick that up. Okay, so you said he is, so Daniel is humble and polite to those in whom he had. Yeah, okay, okay, I didn't pick that one up. Okay, so he, so, so you're, you're recognizing the fact that this is whom Daniel is, 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 is humble and polite in coming before, because really what he's doing, he's saving all the wise men, isn't he? I mean, he's saving everybody. He's saving everybody with truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so he's not, he's not identifying, this is coming from me, this is coming from God. We're going to see that definitely. Yeah, good. Yes. Sovereign. Yes. 
Where do you see that? Where do you see that? Tell me where that is. 21. Okay, good. 21, yes. He's in control of seasons, interestingly enough, but he's not only in control of seasons generally, but he's also in control of who rules and who doesn't rule. Okay, what else? He has the power to change. Okay, what verse? Okay, good. All right, somebody said something up back here. He is the giver. Yes, he is giving. Where do you find that? What verse? 21. Or 23? Okay. What else? And where? Oh, okay, I got you, got you, got you. So you're going back to verse 4 and saying that, that's who they're worshiping, you know, they're worshiping him, the one who can't, the, that's out of control here, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And why do you say that? What's, where do you see that? Uh, what verse is that? 23. To you, O God of my fathers, he's a covenantal God. Excellent. So he's pointing back to the relationships of the people that he had in the past in order to bring confidence to him. Yes. Okay, so I'm just saying this out loud for everybody else. So the covenant, uh, covenant relationship that God has entered into them, he can actually appeal to this God because God has made a covenant with them so that even when they're in exile, they know that uh, they can still continue to reach out to him who is all these other things that we have here. Anybody else want to knock one off before we look at two? Yes. He, okay, he, generous? I didn't hear the first one. Attentive. 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 Why do you say attentive? Where, 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 where did you get that? And gave generously, yeah, yeah. Okay, Tony, nice transition into what I want to have here. But I see one more hand there, young man. Yes, sir. Excellent. Yes. So here we go. We're going to transition to two, two, two characteristics. I think it's interesting there at verse 18 that you just pointed out to us, and that is, first of all, God's mercy. Tony just pointed out to us as well. A core characteristic that any follower of the living God can count on is God's mercy. So I found it interesting that as he, as he says, okay, um, uh, God, uh, King, uh, give us some time. He goes back to his friends, and he says, okay, here's the plan, guys. Pray. Now, he, but he says this. He says, Pray to the God who's merciful. And then the second thing he says here is from, uh, seek mercy from the God of heaven. So 
those were at least two characteristics that he entered into knowing that this is true. And then when God revealed it to him, then we have the hymn, and that's some of the things that we were pulling out of there. So core characteristic that any follower of the living God can count on is God's mercy. We can count on God being kind to us. Now consider how extraordinary this is in Daniel's life. Because mercy Mercy is not the first go-to in terms of a human response to a difficulty and seemingly hopeless situation. Think about Daniel. I think we can assume probably that Daniel was a godly man and a man who knew Scripture, and yet who's the first who goes into exile? He's the one who is swept into, into exile, and he's the one who's been faithful all this time. I find that very interesting. Here, here is the people around him who have rejected God, and God is disciplining them by bringing in the, the, the king of, of Babylon, and the pe- first people who get swept into it is Daniel. Now, if I was Daniel, what would I be? I'd be bitter. I mean, I've been working hard for you, God, and now you, you, I, I'm getting exiled. I'm, getting to, I'm having to be, leave my family. I'm having to leave my country. I'm having to leave everything that I'm comfortable with. You're taking all that away from me. This is how you respond to somebody who's been faithful to you. But he doesn't respond to that because he recognizes that God, first of all, is merciful. Okay, So he understands who God is, um, that he is kind God is just and God is merciful. Here's what Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, wrote. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. He said, As there are a variety of miseries which the creature is subject unto, so he has in himself a shop. Speaking of God. So he has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises in the Scripture. If your heart is hard, his mercy is tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you, if you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and to cleanse you. A treasury of all sorts of mercies. Ephesians 2.4 reveals a key concept. Ephesians 2.4 reveals a key concept about God's mercy. It's interesting there. It says God, it, God doesn't have mercy. Did you know that? God doesn't have mercy. He doesn't have mercy. He is mercy. Ephesians 2.4 says this. God being rich in mercy. See, if mercy is, was something he simply had, while his deepest nature was something else, there's a possibility that he had a limit on how much mercy he could give, but that's not the case. He's essentially merciful. Thus, to pour out mercy for him is to act in accordance of who he is. So we've brought in a whole bunch of circumstances in here this morning, right? You have brought, I got my own circumstance, you've got your own circumstance, you've got your own circumstance, you've got your own circumstance. We we all have different circumstances, and we can interpret those circumstances, particularly if they're miserable and difficult and trying. We have one way we can interpret it, or we can have another way we can interpret it. Well, one thing we can know within those contexts of those those circumstances is God is merciful. He's, He's being merciful. That's good news. That's good news. All right? Um, let me just read this Um, Ray Ortland this is what he says about that if mercy was something he simply had 
while his deepest nature was something else, there's a possibility that he had a limit on how much mercy to be given. But that's not the case. He is essentially mercy, merciful. Thus, to pour out mercy for him is to act in accordance to who he is. It is notable that there is no other characteristic that Scripture identifies him being rich in. The Christian life is a lifelong shedding of our te- te- tepid, sorry, tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. So the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of our tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. We don't think hot enough about his mercy, about his goodness. So where do we go when our circumstances are beyond our control or when our circumstances overwhelm us? Well, Psalm 69, verse 16 says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. So we just go to God and say, turn to me. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Where do we go when our own sin overwhelms? Psalm 51, verse 5. Or sorry, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. All right. All right, mercy. So how do we think sane in this crazy world? The first thing is we know God. We hold fast to who he is, and we hold fast to the fact that he's merciful. Secondly, second characteristic we found in that, in that uh, verse 18 is God of heaven. He's God of heaven. So God's sovereignty. The Babylonians and their wise men worshipped and sought help from the works of creation. So they, their main gods were sun and moon, and they sought direction from the stars of the heavens. But they did not know the God of the heavens. Daniel sought the maker of the universe, the sovereign. And it's interesting in the book of Daniel that the word heaven or heavens is found 32 times in the book of Daniel. Um, He understood where God fits in the universe. He's the God above the heavens. Um, This very dense usage of one word within one book. Um, So Daniel understood where God fits. He's sovereign over the universe. And thus, Daniel understood where he fit within that universe. Um, so Daniel resolved to hold fast to God who is merciful and sovereign in order to have clarity in the face of his hostile uh, culture. Now I just want to say one more thing about um, verses 20 through 23, which is the hymn there. Um, the emphasis throughout this hymn is, is God's grace. God's grace. Um, and that grace is revealed in God revealing himself to humanity. Daniel be- begins with blessing the name of God. Right? So he's blessing the name of God, which is the sum total of all of his characteristics, of all of his attributes. But notice that God doesn't just uh, reveal his name. He makes wisdom available. So who said give? He's a giver. Yes, sir. Our youngest participant. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He reveals. I'm just quoting from out of that hymn. You have given me wisdom, made known to me, for uh, you have made known to me, for you have made known. He's a God who wants us to know. And Daniel recognizes the same God who revealed himself to those in the past is the same God who's revealing himself to wisdom to him now. So he says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Going back to what then Alex said, and that is that the God who was true to them in the past is still the same God who's true to us in the present or in his case, Daniel, or in our presence, right? So the one who's made a covenant with them, he's made a covenant with us. And so we can rest in the fact that we can think clearly knowing that God is merciful and that God is sovereign and he's a gracious God for us. Colton. Would you agree that the instrument of God's mercy, specifically in this passage, 
Right. When I, I think Rick and I were sitting down here between times and we were, we were asking that very question, what does that look like today? What does, um, what's in what your sense is saying, I think what I hear you're saying is that what's the clarity that I need in the circumstance that I brought in here today? Where do I, I find that? And ultimately, you, you answered it. You said, one, knowing the word of God and then walking in faith in that. And there's times where what is faith? Faith is that we, 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 have, we have to step out not knowing the outcome of this and you know, there's a lot of this, there's, you know, when you think about decision making, there's a lot of the decisions that we have to make that we don't have 100%. Probably there's not a very few decisions that we have that are, we 100% know this is the right decision. Sometimes it's 95%, yep, or a lot of our decisions though are 55%. Oh boy, I don't know. But we've got to step out in faith in what we believe the Word of God is telling us to do, and it's a stepping out, and, you know, so it's, it's walking in faith, trusting in the Word of God, walking in faith, seeing how the outcome is and then making adjustments accordingly. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Listening to the Holy Spirit, because ultimately that is what the Spirit is using. This Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to illuminate His Word to us in the very present circumstances that we are, that we are in. So... Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we know the commandments. We know the great commission. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go. Make disciples. Make disciples. That kind of thing. All right. Let's move on. So Daniel, I'm going to go down to verse 27. Daniel answered the king. He's, brought in, he's been brought into the king. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Agreed. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now just right there, look at the grace of God that he's given towards Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is what blows me away. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve this, but God has revealed to him something about the future. And ultimately, what does God reveal? Truly, truly revealing to him who is the sovereign one, right? What's he doing? He's calling. He's calling Nebuchadnezzar, calling him. He's calling him out. You think you're sovereign? Oh, you're not sovereign. You thought your gods were sovereign? They're not sovereign. So he's calling, calling them out. Verse, uh, verse 31. You saw, O king, so here's the, here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of, uh, of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze, the silver and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, uh, floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, so there's the dream. There's the dream. Now we've got to go into the interpretation of the dream. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. Okay, so we now know our, your place. You, we now know your place. You know, I'm the one who gave this to you. Um, verse, uh, verse 36, 38. And into his hand he has given whomever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Hmm. Okay. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron it crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed." Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forevermore. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by the no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Okay, wow. So here's the lesson for the king. Within the framework of the big picture, Nebuchadnezzar, you're inconsequential. His place in the kingdom is about to be revealed to him was simply the gracious act of God and basically he says this, you're just one of many kingdoms. But there's going to become one kingdom that's going to prevail. God's kingdom will prevail. And so thorough, did you see that? So thorough will be the end of all human kingdoms that they will be like chaff in the wind on the threshing floor. And he, he says, so that, verse 35, not a trace of them can be found 
And this includes Babylon, which would have been an amazing thing to be saying to a world power at the point which seems to have no end in sight. That would have been a humbling reality for Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so, um, so these are all these kingdoms, and ultimately one kingdom is going to come. And it's going to come, and it's going to be made not by human hands, but by coming from heaven, by God himself, God's kingdom. Principle number one. So here's some principles. Principle number one. Living and leading in Babylon requires we know the character of our God. So we've got to know the character of our God. So that would be one principle, I think, that we can take from this. We need to know the character of our God. All right? Principle number two is living and leading in Babylon. We need to read the insanity of our day through the lens of that character. So we need to read the insanity of our days through the lens of the character of God. Should I explain it? Okay. So... If you read, if, if you get on your uh, um, social media posts and you start reading all the way through there and you do not read those with the character of God, using the lens of the character of God, of who he is, that he is one who is sovereign and that he is merciful and that he is working, you're going to read that and you as a Christian holding on to the principles that you're holding on to, you're going to get re- what? Really discouraged, Right? It's going to seem like this world is going crazy. And it is. It's going insane. And the thinking is insane. But if we're reading through with knowing who God is, as we're reading through and recognizing, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's understand this in terms of who God, how God has revealed himself. Then we can begin to get any, you know, that discouragement that's in this. We can begin to say, oh, no, God's in control here. He's working and, and moving. All right, so is that enough or do we need, is, is that... Do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay. So, yeah. I would say, because he's, he's both judging, he's both judging the false gods that, that's good. of the world, and he's showing mercy. Yeah. You know, at the same time, he's, he's doing both. And so, the insanity of our world is the judgment of God. Romans 1. Yep, give you over. Give you over, give you over. I'll just give you over. You want this? I'll give it to you. So there's, there's grace in that. And as a matter of fact, even in that insanity, so this is where I go back and say this is why we can have hope in all of this, is that in his judgment, what is he trying to do? He's trying to awaken people to the, to the insanity and to this emptiness in order they might find the one who can fill them up. And that's what, exactly what he was doing with King Nebuchadnezzar. Trying to awaken this guy. Yeah. Yeah.
there's one overarching story, and it's God's story. And we're living, we live out our own story, broken stories within that, but there's always hope within those, all those broken stories that we can come back and get our, plug ourselves back into God's story. And that's the good, that's the good news. One more principle. Yeah, you got, you got. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. The means to bring back a restoration is us. He doesn't do this outside of us. He does this. He brings people into his kingdom. Okay, so what, what, if you didn't hear that, is that we, Daniel would not have isolated himself from his Facebook scroll, but rather he would have engaged the world with truth in his Facebook, in his Facebook scroll. Which, here's, here's my third principle, because I want to get at that, and that is that living and leading in Babylon responds to this insanity with wisdom. So what are we doing? We're taking God's word, we're taking wisdom, and then this, and without unnecessary offense. You're the one, Yeah. Uh, you picked up on that. You picked up on the fact that, Shane, you, that when he entered back into the king's presence, he did it without being offensive. You know, he's, he's not. And so that's our, that, so there's our social media moment right there, right? We respond with wisdom and we respond without, um, how do I say that there? I want to say it with the right way. Unnecessary offense. Now, truth offends, but the way we say it, is unnecessary offense. Yeah, Shane is guilty of being offensive. Anybody else? <laughs> yeah. The gospel is offensive. The gospel, but we don't have to be unnecessarily offensive with the, with the gospel. One more, Alex, way in the back. Yeah, so you're pointing out that he was offensive, right? The truth was, actually, Daniel wasn't being offensive. God was, one, God was the one being offensive. God was putting Nebuchadnezzar in his place. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar, this is where you fit in this, in this world. You fit as a king in whom I have planted and in whom I will uproot this kingdom. That's what he's telling him. And so that, you know, you can respond to that in Several ways, and we're going to find out in chapter 3 exactly how we responded to that. So we won't go there. But okay, so, so there's our principles. We need to quit here. So application number one is this. So this is going to sound, sound a little crazy, but here, here's what I think we need to do. Um, how, how do we apply these principles? Well, number one, gather. Gather to sing and speak and hear about the character of God. Gather. So the Sunday gathering is incredibly practical for living and leading in Babylon. It, it counters and recenters our life around the reality of God. Our gatherings on Sunday morning are absolutely important for what we're talking about here because this is where we remind ourselves again what our true identity is. 
and then we go back out as, as missionaries. Day, number two, um, daily, daily, we need to reorient ourselves around the character of God. Daily, we need to reorient ourselves around the character of God. So there is a place for you to carve out within your day time in God's word and reminding yourself again of who God is of who God is. As simple as taking a psalm and taking even a verse in the psalm and, and meditating on that one psalm that talks about who is God in this, in this, uh, in this psalm? Who is he to, to myself? That actually is incredibly practical for what you're going to have to do when you go back out into and you're working and then you go to the water cooler, as we mentioned before, or to lunchtime, that you have that characteristic in your head of what God has revealed to you today because he most likely will give you something you need to know for that day. So daily, this is a daily thing. So when disciples asked Jesus how to pray, this is what he said. He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy, hallowed be thy name. Okay, there's, there's a lot we can say here. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this, what? Daily. This our day, our daily bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. So there's the reason why he said that. So we need to reorient ourselves around the character of God that way. And then finally, number three, we must be singers. That's weird. We must be singers. We must sing his praise. We must sing his praise. Just this last week, I listened to John Piper give a message titled, We Win the World with Singing. And in that message, this is what he, he said about singing. He says, the treasure of God is so great that spoken language alone does not suffice as an adequate expression of his worth. Therefore, God has given singing to his people as one of the most precious and powerful expressions of our gladness in his glory. All right? So we need to be singers. Uh, we need to be men who sing. Um, and we do these things, all of those things, to bring clarity in the face of the culture that is hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. So again, I'm going to say it one more time. We must resolve to hold fast to our God if we are to have clarity in the face of the culture that is hostile uh, to our faith. 